Hello, welcome back to Atlantic Baptist Stories. My name's Hannah Roberts and I am the coordinator for this oral history project. You'll be hearing today from Reverend John C. Perkin, who is currently the minister at First Baptist Church in Ottawa, Ontario. John was a university chaplain for 27 years at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick, and he reflects on the kind of support he was uniquely able to offer students there. He also talks about his church community in Ottawa and how they have approached change and planning for the future in such a long-standing congregation. You'll hear some of John's observations on changes in the Baptist tradition in Canada as a whole and what that tradition means to him. John is interviewed by Ginny Wilmhoff, who headed up the Oral History Project last year. I was raised in a Christian home, went to church as a child, went to church as a young adult. Um, Through my teen years, um, I never really was not a Christian. I started university at an early age. I was barely 16 when I started, and I was involved both in my home church and in the university chapel. And after I graduated, I was getting ready to go to England for graduate study, and that's the point at which I made the decision to be baptized. Baptism was less, uh, well, it, it wasn't even close to being an experience of conversion or coming to the faith. It was really more uh, a sense of this is my way of anchoring myself to this community of faith, which has supported me for the last 10 years. Can you tell me more about your home church, what it was yeah, like? Yeah, I, uh, I described Woolful Baptist as my home church because we moved around a bit when I was young. I was uh, I was born in Manchester. My father was a minister in a Baptist church in Manchester at the time. Um, a few years later, we moved to Northamptonshire, which was my parents' home area. We lived in the village where my father was uh, was born and raised. And he was teaching in Edinburgh. So in the English system, as you know, there's eight-week semester. So he'd go to Edinburgh for eight weeks and then come back for you know, six weeks uh, between terms and then go, go again. Um, so we did that for two or three years. And then he accepted a job at McMaster Divinity College. And we moved to Canada. So I was part of Dundas Baptist. But then at the age of about 10 or 11, I guess, we moved to Woolfolk. My father moved to Acadia. And so from 10 until 20, I was part of Wolfo Baptist. That was my home church. Those were formative years, you know, because I was, I, was, uh, I was an adolescent and then I was a teen, but not just a teen, I was a teen in university. And it was a very welcoming church. You know, when I was in high school, my high school science teacher also was my boys club leader. And so Sunday mornings, we would go down and have boys club down in the basement of the church. And, uh, so was that like Boy Scouts? No, it was like uh, Sunday school, but for boys. Um, okay. So it was teenage boys. So it was not a class. It was uh, everybody from like 12 to 18, I think. Um, but it was all boys. And, uh, and it was good. You know, it, it gave me a sense of belonging. And, uh, um, and it gave me an appreciation that, you know, this man who was my science teacher also had a very deep faith and was mm. interested in, in church. There were three people that stood out in that church for me. One was a retired minister. He had been minister of Wolfville Baptist, and he seemed ancient to me. I mean, he may have been 70, he may have been 80, um, he may have been 90, but uh, um, anyway, he was always very interested in me and thought I had the uh, capacity, the gifts, the calling to ministry. And he'd always tell me this, I think you will, you should be in ministry. And there was a retired professor, um, of biblical studies at the church 
who sat in front of us, and even at the age of 11 or 12, I remember we would sit down and he would turn around and greet my parents, but then he would always turn and greet me because he was a professor of biblical studies. He would greet me with shalom. So he taught me what shalom meant. And so after a while I got that, but he would say shalom, my friend. So this was kind of a, a way of having a sense that, I mean, this man who was in his seventies and he was tall, he was like six foot four, he was a tall, rangy man. And, uh, you know, I was just a small child. And uh, you know, so I definitely looked up to him in, in more ways than one. But he almost treated me as an equal, as a brother in faith in some ways. And then there was the church custodian who had left school at the grade three to support his family. And I think he probably had a drinking problem and, uh, you know, and was, uh, you know, had, had issues. But again, he was always very interested in me and he thought I should go into ministry. Um, and he was so impressed with me and I had taken part in services from time to time. When I graduated from high school, he showed up because he was so proud of me. And so these three people, Dr. Olson and Dr. Levy and Ken, uh, whose last name I don't remember, um, just took an interest in me. And to me, they represented what church was. It was people that took an interest in one another and supported each other. And, and they all, in their own way, nurtured me in my call to ministry. What gifts do you think they saw in you at that, at that time? I think uh, interest in people and communication, probably, uh, were the principal ones. I had taken part in services. I preached my first sermon in the church at the age of 14 or 15, maybe. I mean, I don't know that I fully felt called. It was a bit of a pull, but there were other things I wanted to do. So I did my graduate work overseas. I came back to Canada. I was uh, working at the university. I was supposed to go to the Grenada to teach school down there. I had a job lined up to go and teach. Uh, yeah. Even had a little bungalow picked out, uh, your mango trees growing in the backyard. It was, uh, uh, I was going to go and teach English and history at a school in Grenada. And then they had a revolution and Ronald Reagan sent in the U.S. Marines. And uh, I got a message from a Canadian who had just left Grenada saying, message from the principal, don't come. So I ended up going back to school again to do a graduate degree and halfway to my graduate degree. And so this is six years into university. Uh, I wanted a break and I wanted to Winnipeg to visit a friend of mine who was a minister, one of my university mates. And uh, instead of staying there for two weeks, I stayed for about five weeks. And at the end of five weeks, I made the pledge to come back and serve as the youth pastor in the church for a year. I would live with him. I would get minimal pay, and it would be, I would be working on my thesis for my, my graduate degree, but I would be doing youth ministry. And he started getting me involved in Sunday morning worship. And I just, I realized um, at the end of the year, I had offers from two other churches to come and serve as youth minister in their churches. And I made, in a sense, I think three commitments. One was that I was going to go into ministry. It was just felt right. It was, it was giving in to the calling that. Had always been there, but now I was doing it. Mm -hmm. So the second mm -hmm. part of the commitment was I'm going back to school and I'm going to do the degree and I'm going to go into it properly. And the third part of it was a little bit tongue in cheek. I am never going to do youth work again. <laughs> you know, and it was just it was not my thing. And so I made preparations to uh, uh, to go to McMaster and prepare for ministry. So I took on the student pastorate when I was 27. And I was still thinking of myself as pretty young and inexperienced. I can't even remember what happened, but something happened at the church. One of the oldest and, and most venerable of the deacons came to me at the beginning of this crisis, you know, and I remember his words, something along the lines of, this is very good, you know, it's, uh, um, I'm glad you're here. At times like this, we just really need a minister. 
you know, and so he wasn't looking on me as a student that he was shaping. He was looking on me in all my inexperience as the one that was guide, going to guide them through this difficulty. And so there was that sense of sitting in the classroom and getting as high uh, academic, uh, high caliber academic uh, instruction, and then going out and trying to make that real to the people in the pews. Authenticity is everything. And uh, the gospel is communicated through authenticity. Well, I went out to visit a fellow one time. Uh, I got out of the car and he got off the tractor and we were chatting a bit and he was talking about his work. And I said, well, uh, the alfalfa looks really good this year. And he looked at me and said, you know what that is? I said, well, it's alfalfa. And he says, there haven't been too many ministers who would know alfalfa from hay. And, you know, that small thing impressed the heck out of him. And the next Sunday he was in church. I mean, those are small things, but they're huge, right? Right. So would you like to talk more about being the chaplain chaplain at Mount A? I could talk for hours about my time at Mount A. Uh, you know, in many ways, I, I saw it as a, as a great fit for me because of that balance between the academic environment and the pastoral work. I think something ministers often lose sight of in ministry is that there's a secular world out there because you're immersed in the church and the people mm-hmm. that you interact with are church people. The, the university was... I wasn't always interacting with church people, but it was a good balance for me. Plus, no one really had any idea what the chaplain was supposed to do. And so I could kind of create the position in the way I wanted to, because I can um, and I will quote my job description verbatim from memory. When I was hired in 1993, my contract said it is the work of the university chaplain to nurture spiritual life on campus. That was my job description. That was it. There was nothing. That was it. Else? That was the whole job description. So I did that. <laughs> you know, so it was it was a question of of reminding people of the importance of spirituality and faith and and religion and um, and being that presence. It was being that presence in pastoral ways and in critical moments and and important moments. I mean, not just uh, the uh, critical moments of, of uh, crisis, of death, of illness, of. Uh, existential angst, but, but the critical moments of celebration and joy and all the rest, uh, and then also being grounded in that, that community of faith um, and and its worship. So what was the chapel community like? I know it, it, cha- it changed over the course of the It changed over the course of 27 years. When I first arrived, um, you know, I started building it up from next to nothing. Um, I was the fifth chaplain in a five-year period. And, you know, the first couple of years, we would have a congregation in the chapel of anywhere from 50 to 75 people. And, uh, you know, over the years, that started to decline, of course, as uh, fit the uh, demographics of the country. Worship, for me, never lost its importance, but it lost its importance to everybody else. You know, how much time should you be investing in this? Um, Pastoral care and counselling took on greater importance. When I first arrived at Mount A, the statistics nationally, I think probably Mount A uh, fit this, uh, were that somewhere between 3 and 5% of the student body or young adults were dealing with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. By the time I left there almost 30 years later, the statistics across Canada were that somewhere between 30 and 35% of students mm-hmm. are dealing with mental health issues. So being a part of that response, not just being another secular counsellor, but but offering a, a different kind of response. Um, you know, and a response of presence, a response of offering meaning in that face of that kind of existential angst that I referred to earlier. Because bottom line for many students was that uh, their issues, whether they came as, I'm not sure if I'm um, 
homosexual or heterosexual or bisexual, or I've just broken up with my boyfriend, or I don't know what I should major in, or my parents are getting divorced. I mean, it doesn't matter what the issue. Um, for a young adult, it comes down to a sense of this affects my sense of identity, meaning, and purpose. And those are the the big issues for young adults. And I'm not sure our secular counselors, with their cognitive behavioral approach, were responding to the big questions of who am I, what's it all about, where am I going? And I think that's something that religion and spirituality can and must answer. But I remember one convocation, a woman came up and said, I just had to shake the hand of the chaplain who's done so much for my son, the Baptist chaplain who got my son to come back to synagogue with me, a young man who drifted away from faith and through conversation started to see that that could be important to him and for him to go home and say to mom, you know, I'll come to synagogue with you this time. Can you tell me a bit about your current church? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a historic church uh, in the sense that it's uh, kind of was the founding church for many other churches in Ottawa. It's been here since before Canada was a country. So it was established in the early 1860s, First Baptist Ottawa. It's had its heyday. I mean, it's like any downtown urban church. It's going through its struggles right now. But, you know, it's it's got its uh, old guard of people who've been there for years and years. And, uh, you know, they're in their 70s and 80s and they're white. And there are people there who are from Burma and Vietnam and China and Japan and India and Syria and Argentina, Nigeria and Ghana and Cameroon and Rwanda. And the list goes on. So it's mm. quite a diverse congregation. Uh, we've got everybody from those who, um, you know, the guy that works delivering pizzas in the evenings uh, to PhDs in math and finance and uh, chemical engineering and you name it. So it's, it's quite diverse uh, ethnically, um, theologically. We've got everything from, you know, quite conservative um, to quite liberal to, you know, from you know, kind of folk religion to very carefully thought out, uh, very well-read religion. Yeah, mostly older folks, but uh, younger families, younger folks coming in. Um, You know, we've had several people join the church since we opened up again in the post-COVID reopening at the end of August. And we've had uh, uh, some families and some young single people join us, uh, which has been encouraging. It's fairly formal, traditional in its style of worship, uh, its music and its liturgy. Um, again, from a Catholic perspective, it's uh, you know not not formal, but uh, but from a Baptist perspective, it's one of the most formal churches in the country. A responsive call to worship, or responsive psalm readings and uh, traditional hymns, and uh, sung responses during communion sometimes, and uh, and they value preaching. You know that's that's been one of the mainstays, and I think that's one of the reasons they they were interested in me was they wanted someone who could who could preach well and reach people at all levels you know all those different levels uh, that are represented in the church you know the young faith and the traditional faith and the educated faith so it's got a uh, a bit of a ministry to the downtown area to some of the street people but it's also a kind of a destination church because people come from all over the city i mean there are people that drive half an hour on a sunday morning to get there you know and there's challenges uh, to an aging building and an aging congregation where going through a strategic planning process. Um, yeah, um, and there's potential, you know, uh, there's uh, there's a little bit of money that's going to run out at some point, but there have been bequests made that uh, has given some money. And, you know, one of the considerations is how are we going to use this? Uh, mm. We hire a second minister to, uh, uh, at least in the short term, to see what we can do to, uh, to engage in a, a robust ministry. How do you hold together a congregation that kind of, that has that kind of diversity? 
that sense that what we hold in common, and we begin with Christ as Lord, is far more significant than what we don't necessarily agree on. And Baptists are not creedalists, uh, we don't have creeds, but the one thing all Baptists are supposed to agree on is Christ as Lord. And that is so central, so foundational, so huge, that we can disagree on other things. But we hold that, you know, that this person Christ who, with whom I have a relationship in whatever form and however I understand it, uh, who works in me by the Spirit, who's, uh, and that relationship shapes and transforms and changes my life. We're all on that same page. Uh, and beyond that, that uh, we have this good news that we are bid um, to share with others. We might disagree on how we're supposed to share it and what we're supposed to do in sharing it, but we, we, we have this sense that we hold this mission that, that what we celebrate is, is the good news of the gospel and and that's so good, it, it should be shared. I may be being a little oversimplistic, but I think those are some of the, some of the things. You know, the nuts and bolts we have to work out, but the, uh, but the big things we hold. Um, one of the, and I did part of the strategic planning back through the winter. I started the process by interviewing people in the congregations in small groups. So I did a series of Zoom meetings of mm-hmm. you know, anywhere from six to 12 people. And I think I did about 20 of these. And uh, so I began by saying, so we're doing a strategic plan. And as you know, when, when the church does a strategic plan, that means it's looking at doing things differently. That means there will be change. So here's the question. When things change, what are you hoping doesn't change? In other words, what's important to you about first? What's valuable? What brought you there or what keeps you there? What's, mm-hmm. what's significant? So what's significant at first was a rich sense of community of people who care about one another, a real sense of diversity that people enjoy and appreciate, an appreciation of a rich music ministry and a value of uh, kind of formal, traditional worship with solid preaching. So don't change those things, right? Mm-hmm. Don't do anything that's going to mess up our sense of community. Well, I can tinker with the worship and I've already started doing that, um, but I'm not, I'm not altering any sense of the... Um, the integrity of it, the essential parts. You know, so I can introduce some different kinds of music, some, uh, some Teze pieces that we'll sing as brief responses, but we're still singing this, the traditional hymns. We're not replacing things. And, uh, you know, and as for the community, that's, you know, uh, the best thing I can hope as a minister is that uh, as a leader of this community is I, I don't get in the way of that community that is operating. I need to be very careful when I start thinking about what do I need to do to nurture community that, in fact, I'm not doing something to muck it up mm-hmm. because it's already working. So, mm-hmm. so one of the most effective things I can do is, is stay with the status quo or, or stay out of the way, you know, and, and rejoice in some of the things that are happening. How would you characterize a Baptist? Like, what does being Baptist mean to you? Well, what it means to me and what it means to other Baptists might be different, but uh, being Baptist means an autonomy of the local congregation. So there is not a top-down authority telling this church what to believe or how to act. So we are in association with other Baptists, but we have an autonomy around our belief and our practice. And that applies to the individuals as well. So again, that diversity in the congregation, that people in the church can believe kind of what they choose to believe because we hold to one central thing in common. You know, that, that, Uh, centrality of Christ, Christ as Lord. And being Baptist means that however we understand it, and people understand it in different ways, that we have a relationship with Christ. 
you know, that, that we have this, that it is not a disembodied abstract concept, that somehow we enter into a relationship with the person, with God revealed in the person of Christ and made manifest in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Somehow there is this transformational relationship. Uh, being Baptist means that we, we are rooted in scripture. Uh, we are not fundamentalists, so we, we don't idolize scripture, but, uh, you know, and we, we tend to run scripture through the filters of tradition and experience and reason, but but we're still very much rooted in scripture. You know, a, a Baptist, uh, if you step into a Baptist church and, you know, the minister steps up to read scripture and announces the text, you will hear a rustling of pages because everybody in the pews is turning to their own copy that they've lugged in with them. Have you seen that the diversity has changed within the church as, as a whole, not particularly a First Baptist, but in the Baptist church as a whole um, throughout your life? Well, I will say that in Canada, um, and this comes both from my observations as a minister, but also from my studies as an academic, because one of the things that I, my scholarship included was um, Canadian church and culture. And the short version is, and this might sound a bit cynical or a bit negative, but in the Baptist church in Canada, there was this sense of diversity. We had a big enough tent that it encompassed all people. But what's happened over the last 30 years since the 80s is that Canadian Baptists have been largely influenced by American evangelicalism. And so that has taken root. And so there's a much more dominant uniformity. And that particular American style of evangelicalism, as it's manifest in Canadian Baptist churches, is not welcoming of diversity. It strives for, a, you know, along with all those other things that go with American evangelicalism in its conservative form, and, and I say capital E, evangelicalism, because I see myself as evangelical, small e. But that's a word that has come to have a specific meaning. And I'm, I refuse to give it up to, to that particular conservative group that votes Republican and uh, believes in Second Amendment rights and, uh, you know, and is uh, dead set against uh, certain social things like uh, abortion and homosexuality and so on. And, uh, you know, and, and so it comes as a package. And so instead of in the Baptist church having this diversity of views and this ongoing conversation, it's like, this is what we hold. To. And so the progressive Baptists are becoming a smaller minority and finding themselves edged out. And not to say they're right or wrong either, but, uh, but there's much more a, kind of a, a uniformity and an American, an Americanism creeping into Canadian Baptists. It's a, a small P Pentecostal form that didn't used to exist. And that is not, not only is it not um, as rejoicing in education as it used to be, because the Baptists in the first part of the 20th century were big believers in education, higher education, you know, a founding of Acadia, founding of uh, Brandon College, founding of McMaster, um, and so on. Big believers in education, lots of ministers with not just their BA, BD, or MDiv, but higher degrees, other master's degrees, or even doctoral degrees. Now there's not only... Uh, a loss of respect for education, there's almost a fear of it. So, you know, many more ministers are coming out with Bible college degrees and churches are being very skeptical about university people, you know? So it's just kind of almost a, I hate to say it, but uh, there's a a shorthand way of putting it. It's almost a dumbing down of, uh, of the faith in the churches, you know? And so I'm seeing a loss of that critical thinking about the faith. Uh, You know, I've always maintained that the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear. And that a robust faith is open to critical inquiry. 
it's, it's the weak faith that is not open to critical inquiry. So I've quite happily always uh, straddled that line between academic and minister and engaged in critical methodologies because, um, by and large, they strengthen my faith rather than chipping away at it. If the con- convention continues, uh, voices within it, because it's not a top-down, right? It's a bottom-up. So there are many churches that are pushing for churches to be more uniform and to be uh, to be reprimanded, to be penalized, to be uh, pushed to conform to specific evangelical ideas. And, you know, we will not be pushed that way. In fact, if anything, we will be pushed out of the convention if that becomes that we will not be part of that uniformity. Part of First Baptist history and mine is that we have been progressive, but that is not to say that we have wanted to push out those churches that have been conservative or fundamentalist. The tent is big enough. But when those churches say the tent is not big enough, uh, you need to shape up or ship out, then we start saying maybe our place is no longer in the convention. Maybe we, we start a new convention that represents that old tradition. Because again, it goes back to the autonomy of belief of the believer and the autonomy of the local congregation. I am part of a monthly Zoom meeting of a few Baptist ministers who see themselves as representing that that traditional Baptist uh, kind of ideology, or uh, that's not quite the right word, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, of, of diversity and openness and strength in, in learning and academics. And uh, uh, so there are ministers from, I think, 10 different Baptist churches from Nova Scotia to British Columbia. Not all provinces are represented, but uh, we meet once a month for a couple of hours to talk things through about what it means to be Baptist in Canada these days. You know, and we nurture one another and encourage one another uh, because part of it is how can we find ways to continue to nurture that tradition of being Baptist in this country. How has your relationship with with Christ changed over the years? That's a good question. And I think because it's a slow, gradual evolution, it's hard to know. It's a bit like when you're a child and you're growing, you don't really notice it because it's a a, a slow kind of process. But if you step away and then come back, uh, you see someone who's grown. And so someone Mm -hmm. stepping away from me and coming back might see my own changes. And I think in part, that's why I've come back to First Baptist as after all that time at Mount A. It's like, I think there were several things at work. It was time for me to go from Mount A. My time there was done. I was working long hours. But also as I got closer to retirement, it's like, I want to step back into that community. Um, To me, the the manifestation of that relationship is in the community. You know, I've always said that uh, when people are called to ministry, you know, they, they, they need that inner sense of call. They need to have the gifts, the abilities for the call, but they also need to have that call echoed by the community. So my relationship with Christ is very much nurtured by seeing how Christ is alive and at work in the lives of his people. As one of my friends in Ottawa says, you know, this is this is such a neat opportunity for you because many people go through their professional lives wondering what kind of legacy they will leave behind. That's the new buzzword in and corporate world and business world and HR is, is what's your legacy? Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, based on your work at Mount A and your reputation, you have left a legacy there. And now you have a chance to leave another one here. Well, I don't know that I'll be here long enough. I don't know that I will do enough. Uh, we'll see. But uh, but she's right. It's an opportunity to 
you know, that uh, Jungian stage of individuation, regenerativity, you know, that uh, in the Erickson's, uh, Eric Erickson's stage of development, that chance to give back, right? When you, when you come towards the end of your life, I'm, I'm not quite there yet, but I, I see it in sight, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm in, in my sixties now. Um, what, what is important is not what I own, but what I leave behind. What can I do for the sake of the kingdom? Thanks to John for sharing his experience with Ginny and with this project. John's interview was longer than I am able to share here, so if you are interested in listening to the whole interview, you can find his and all other raw interview files on our website at acadiadiv.ca slash That is also where you can learn more about the project and how to submit your own story. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next week.